Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? I'm not sure how long ago this was, but I remember talking with you and Keith, you just seemed really concerned about men. What's going on with men? What's happening in the lives of men? If I remember, you poo-pooed it. I think initially I didn't even want to have this conversation in part because I'm afraid of all the ways talking about the problems with men could be misinterpreted as somehow being anti-woman. Like this is almost a taboo subject. It's an amazing thing that we live in a world that to say that you're concerned about a certain group might mean that you don't care about a different group of people. <laughs> right? Well, but I do think that's the world we live in. And maybe one of the best examples of this is a relatively recent book by a guy named Richard Reeves, works for the Brookings Institute. So Center left. Center left organization. This is not a right wing think tank by any stretch not, of the not at all. It's actually our second conversation around a Brookings Institute guy. We had Jonathan Rausch on not too long ago. So there's another one. Anyways, he wrote this book called Of Boys and Men and he's exploring the problems that men seem to be facing in our society. And as anybody could guess, it's become a bit of a lightning rod. People have been very critical of Richard Reeves, that he's writing about this topic, that maybe he wants women to lose. I think there's just this part of me that says, I don't want to discuss this. And yet, when I picked up the book and I began to understand what's happening across our culture, which I think I understood anecdotally just from my own experience, it did make me realize that if God's called me to love my neighbor, it's not just my female neighbor, it's also my male neighbor. And this is a topic worth discussing. Well, it's amazing how careful you're being, Patrick. (laughs) This is crazy. So if somebody had written this from, say, the Heritage Institute, then there would be a lot of suspicion that maybe this was female bashing, a way to kind of sneak in a male agenda. Yeah, rewind the clock. Like, let's go back to the 1950s and let's set women back as much as we can because we need men to win. But because it's written by Richard Reed for the Brookings Institution, I think lots of people are open to this data. Mm. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of people who you would consider on the center left all the way further to the left left are open to the possibility that there really is something going on. Now, what policy solutions you come up with, well, that's going to vary. And I think at this point, we're still early in the game. And so I don't think there's a consensus around what we should do. But we might as well just kind of get in and say, what does the data say? And to even narrow the camera down to kind of our own little evangelical subculture Christians, there's also this very live debate about how evangelicals have talked about masculinity and how that's affected femininity. And so I think there's fears that by trying to reclaim or re-envision a positive vision for men, we're going to rewind the clock to an era where women weren't treated well inside of church. You're being so careful. It is amazing. Oh, you love it. I mean, it's like eggshells all over the floor where we're standing. So (laughs) so I don't want to use the word reclaim because reclaim sounds like we want to go back to something else and grab something that's been taken. But I do like what you said, a positive vision for manhood and womanhood, right? We're going to talk about manhood today, but we just got to take a moment and go, okay, what are the conditions that men are in? And I want to start with education. Now, in 1972, Title IX was enacted in order to protect women, especially in higher education. And at that point, women were receiving 13% less bachelor's degrees than men. And so everybody said, okay, look, this is a problem, and we think that this is a systemic problem, and we need to take action. Today, women are receiving 15% more bachelor's degrees in men. It sounds like it worked in the sense that women are receiving more bachelor's degrees, and that's a really good thing, but we've flip-flopped the problem now to where men are receiving far less. Right, and I'm not saying it's either or. I'm just saying that if you... you want a perfect 50-50 split. If we thought, man, women really need some protections, mm. and there's a structural problem because bachelor's degrees are being handed out to women 13% less, well, now we have a bigger gap on the other direction. 
Yeah. So I just think that it's not only though at the top end, say in bachelor's degrees, but it's also on just school readiness. I yeah. mean, boys aren't ready for school at the age of kindergarten. Yeah. So let's get into some of the stats because that's where it starts getting really interesting. So what you just said is true. Girls are 14 percentage points more likely than boys to be school ready at age five. So they're entering into kindergarten. And by high school, girls account for two thirds of the students ranked in the top 10 percent, according to GPA. And as they continue to age in the education system, these differences begin begin to broaden. Well, yes, but hang on a second. The women who have higher GPAs, the standardized test scores have not changed. They are relatively equal, but women are doing much better in school. So it's not that men or women are smarter than each other as a group, right? But it is that women are doing better in the soft skills, like being organized, having ambition, caring, wanting to turn in their chemistry homework on time, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And that's why boys are falling behind. Yeah, that's right. So let's just keep going down some stats. So in the U.S., 57% of bachelor's degrees are awarded to women, and women receive the majority of law degrees. Men are also significantly more likely to stop out. In other words, they either quit or pause their studies for a period of time. But it's not just in education that men are experiencing some major declines. It's also in the labor market. Right now, in the prime age of your work life, so that's, say, 25 to 54, the men inside the labor force in that age range has dropped 7%. So that means there are 9 million prime age working men who are not even in the workforce. And that was all before the pandemic. What are they doing? That's an honest <laughs> question. I have no idea. I can't figure it out. Where are these people and what are they doing? Yeah, well, it's not just not working. The median real hourly wage for working class men who have been impacted. So it's like everything. I feel like as we do this podcast, one thing I've learned is whatever's happening in the culture, it is amplified the poorer you are. The further down you go on the socioeconomic scale, the greater and more dramatic the effects are. And so that's the case for working class men. Their wages actually peaked in the 1970s. This was remarkable. This is not based on inflation. In other words, you can go and look at what a man made in 1970 in a working class job, and he is making less, not accounting for inflation. He is making less today than he was back then. Here's something interesting. There's all kinds of interventions that groups, cities, communities, nonprofits have tried to do to help kids to help students. And maybe those are people in poverty, or maybe they're just open to any student in the area. And the more you start digging into it, the more you realize that those interventions help women, help the women students, female students, but not the boys. And one of the things that Richard Reeves does is he dives into this intervention that took place in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And the reason that one is so easy to see is because it was offered to a wide group of people. Every student in Kalamazoo, Michigan, if they completed four years of education, got to go to the university. If they completed four years of high school education, got to go to a state university or many private universities inside of Michigan, all tuition paid for. And what they found is, is that women were really taking advantage of that, but the guys weren't. It wasn't helping the boys at all. So it's almost as though there was this enormous opportunity given to everyone, but for some reason, women were willing to take the opportunity, but men or boys, teenagers, were not willing to take the opportunity. If I remember right, women in the program had a 45% increase in their college completion rates, but men experienced zero benefit. And so if you go and ask them why, why is it that women are taking advantage of this and men aren't, and they just look at you and they say, we don't know. Because they're scientists, right? They're into the data. And the data doesn't answer that question. But Richard Reeves goes and he talks to a bunch of people in Kalamazoo. And he meets this young black man. And he just is listening to him. What are you seeing? And here's what he said. He said, the women are doing much better in a couple areas. One is motivation. In other words, these women are driven in a way that the men aren't. Second, independence. Like they aren't needing other people around them to encourage them. They can do this on their own. Third, persistence. And fourth, planning. I love this line. Women tend to live in the future. Men tend to live in the present. So you put all those together, motivation, independence, persistence, planning. And at least in this one guy's perspective in Kalamazoo, Michigan, it's no surprise that men are really falling behind. 
Yeah, so in a piece for National Affairs, Reeves kind of gives a succinct answer to this question. I'll just read it because it's good. He says, the problem is not that men have fewer opportunities. So this is key. The issue is not an issue of opportunity. It's something else. He says, it's that they're not seizing them. They're not taking the opportunities. The challenge seems to be a general decline in agency, ambition, and motivation. Which goes back to what you were saying walking on eggshells earlier, is that Title IX need to be enacted because women really were not being given opportunity. Now, that's a whole different kind of thing than what we're talking about now, where yes. people are being given opportunity and the men just aren't rising to the occasion. Well, and one of the wild things, I had no idea this was happening, in a lot of private and Ivy League schools, they're now essentially doing affirmative action for men right. because they're having so few men both apply and actually be accepted into their programs. So it's in a strange way, in some of these places, actually going to have to disadvantage women to allow men in because they lack some of these features, which it feels like a bizarre scenario to be in, but these are the facts on the ground. Because universities want to have enrollment rate that is roughly 50-50 mm-hmm. because that's what both men and women, college students, want. And when it gets too out of whack, then both the men and the women stop going to that college. <laughs> Which, that was also interesting to me that it affects overall attendance if you don't have enough men <laughs> inside of the school. They'll just go to a different school, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I guess women want people to date or be friends <laughs> I don't with know, or whatever experience it is. life with. I don't know. But here's another area of friendships. And this huh. one, I don't know, is close to home because I think it's really important for both men and women to have lots of good friends. Friends make life worth living, in my opinion. And friendships are declining across the board, affecting both men and women. But men, it's affecting far more dramatically. So listen to this. I don't do well with statistics, so just stay with me here. But I think this is profound. In 1990, so not that long ago, 1990, 3% of men said they had no close friends. And it doesn't really surprise me. That seems like you know, there's a lot of guys who don't feel like they have a close friend. But now in 2021, that number has gone from 3% to 15% of men saying they have no close friends. Man, that is wild. That means over one out of every 10 men that you interact with, you meet, you can just fundamentally assume probably has no close friendships. But it's not just that. In 1990, 40% of men said they had 10 or more close relationships, whereas in 2021, only 15% had 10 or more close relationships. You have a large group of men who don't have any close friendships, and the amount of men who have many close friendships, that's dramatically decreasing. Have you seen that skit of Saturday Night Live, the dog park? No. The man park? No. You haven't? Oh my gosh, Oh, I think I have. Keep going. I think you told me about it. I still haven't seen it. Pete Davidson is the guy on it and his, I don't know, girlfriend, partner, wife, I don't know what she is, but she takes him to this man park, which is kind of <laughs> like a dog park because he doesn't have anybody to bond with. And so you have all these guys trying to be friends at the man park and their female partners are all kind of sitting around talking to each other like their kids are on a play date, except it's the men in their life. And the guys have going to all these awkward moments of trying to bond and then getting excited <laughs> when they finally do. It It is absolutely hilarious. But it's all the girlfriends bringing them to the park. (laughs) Yes. And the girlfriends are all kind of just trying to encourage their men to try to find somebody in the park they like. (laughs) And it's sad because that's a bummer to not have any friends and to feel so awkward. But it's interesting that they really put their finger on something. And it's funny, by the way. Well, they put their finger on two things. One is friendlessness amongst men. But another, which I don't have any stats to back up, but we'll get into some of this later, is that I do think that men are harmed more when they live without women. And I do think one of those harms, whether it's not having a girlfriend or having a wife, is that oftentimes women function as the relational social planners inside of the relationship. The man park isn't a joke. I think a lot of men's closest friends, it's actually a function of who their wife's closest friends Who's the social are. chairman in your marriage? Emily is the social chair. You're the social chair I'm in the your social relationship. social chairman, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Christine's lucky to be with you. <laughs> I don't think she'd say that. <laughs> All right. Last thing here on this kind of data stuff is go look at the deaths of despair, hmm. like drugs, suicide. And what you find is that men are hit by far the hardest. The number of men committing suicide has quadrupled between 2010 and 2020. And a wow. lot of those are drug overdoses. Wow. Yeah. I think the number was there's about 7,000 deaths of despair in 2010, 28,000 in 2020. And I think those are from drug overdoses, not all kinds of of suicide. Okay. But still, I mean, is there any other dimension of life where someone says, hey, this group is having a quadrupling of deaths of despair or suicides, right? That we would just say, ah, no big deal. You know, nothing to look at here. Not anything significant. It's such a cold 
response. I mean, that is shocking. That's dramatic. So let's just pause for a second and say, how did we get here? Like, why are we in this scenario? I think you have to look at technology. I mean, technology has had a huge impact on men's self-respect and their role in the world. Well, yeah, in particular, you think about labor. I mean, almost all of our labor is technologically mediated, whether you're typing on a computer or you're out in your construction worker, technology plays a major role in our work. Well, just go back a hundred years or a thousand years or up until like five minutes ago in the history of our culture. And what were men doing? Well, they were doing things like farming or Mm. hunting or building homes, going to war. And there was an advantage built into the cultural system for men who are stronger, bigger, faster, you know, all those kinds of things were valued. And in that same time, there was no birth control. So you have shorter lifespan. You have women who are having babies and then nurturing and taking care of those babies just because of biology. And then you have men who are out providing and protecting. And there were really clear definitions of what a man did and what a woman did. But all that changed with the advent of technology, right? Yeah. So you have two kinds of technology. One form of technology is automation, right? That's going to change your labor. I mean, today, men are the vast majority of the labor market of fields that are affected by automation. So men make up about seven. 70% of production occupations, 80% of transportation occupations. I believe the number one job for men in the United States is truck driving. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't in his book. Not podcast hosts? Not podcast hosts. 90% of construction workers are men. Well, these are all fields, whether it's transportation, production, construction, these are all fields that are dramatically affected by automation. Machines are taking jobs. And so when your physical strength is no longer a boon to your ability to make money, to be productive, to do labor, and as a man, that's one of the best things you have, which is physical strength, well, you're going to be affected by this. Right. In our modern economy, your mental powers, your intelligence is of more important than your physical prowess, right? Mm. If you go to war, it was just kind of the biggest, strongest, fastest. But now, even if you go to war, it's very technical. Yeah, it's cerebral. It's high-tech equipment. It's drones. It's all kinds of things that wouldn't have been involved in war even 100 years ago. Or if you go work at a factory now, it used to be that it was a physically demanding job. And in some ways, it still is. But in other ways, the equipment has totally transformed the factory. So it doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman, because it doesn't matter if you can bench 300 pounds or 100 pounds or nothing at all, right? What matters is that you understand how the equipment works and the system that you're responsible and you're a hard worker. And so once the economy switched from being physically oriented to mentally oriented, valuing that, then it allowed both men and women to excel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you and I have joked in the past that we were born into the right moment. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. If I was born 100 years ago, I'm not, I'm not the physically strongest person I've ever met. I'm not the most athletic person I've ever met. In fact, I'm pretty unathletic. I have some good mental faculties, and that benefits me well in 2023. But if it was 1923 and I needed to be a farmer, well, I might be up a creek without a paddle. And like you said earlier, men are in the industries that are easily overtaken by automation, and women aren't. Mm. So women have historically been involved in things like healthcare or administration, education, literacy, what Richard Reeves calls the HEAL, H-E-A-L. And some of those are susceptible to automation, like, for example, administration. But like, say, healthcare, for example, not so much. And so right at the time that men are feeling their jobs are being threatened, women are excelling. Yeah, yeah. It's a great point. And as you brought up before, the pill has a major effect. We did another episode of What to Expect When You're Not Expecting, which you can go listen to. But there's no doubt that family structures and marriage are changing dramatically in the United States. And a lot of that is not just because of the pill, but the pill had a major part to play in how family structures change. And part of that means that men are less necessary to women. One of the things that we've been reflecting on is that You wouldn't have expected this to come from the feminist movement, but it's something I've come to the conclusion of, which is that men seem to need women more than women need men. What's the phrase? Gloria Steinem popularized it, but I don't think she's the one who created it. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> it was Gloria Steinem. I don't know if she, she said it, but she popularized it. it. I, I know, but I don't think she's the one who originated it. But it's pretty funny. <laughs> it turns out there's actually some truth to this. So someone listening to this could go to the other team and say, oh, so you want women to be back in a situation where they have no control over their reproductive systems, where they have no access to the labor market. And so if they've got an abusive husband who is taking advantage of them, they can't do anything to leave because they're financially dependent upon him. No, 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 no. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go back to a 
world where women are entirely dependent on men. However, one of the ironies of giving women more independence, which I think on the whole is a really, really good thing, is that we've learned men are far more dependent <laughs> than we ever realized. Gloria Steinem, it turns out, was kind of right. So all this is happening. Here's what the data is saying out there. But why does this matter to us? I mean, is this something that we should really care about or not so much? Because I am open to the argument that women have been behind men for centuries and no one cared. When I say behind, I just mean they didn't have the same opportunities. And now we've gone, you know, culturally speaking, historically speaking, five minutes of men being behind and everybody's freaking out. So I'm open to the critique that says, wow, I wish men would have been nearly as concerned about women having opportunities for all those centuries as they are now about themselves. <laughs> I think it's fair. Oh, I think it's a very, very fair critique. And I think that's what some people will hear. It doesn't matter how many times I caveat and say it's not this, it's so not let's that. Not say it anymore. Uh, but I will say it, like the reason why we care is not because either one of us is saying that we want society to be less equitable for women, nor are we saying we think it's a bad thing that women are graduating at higher rates than they were in the past. That's a fantastic thing. I want more people to graduate from college. Nor are we saying that it's a bad thing that women are making more equitable pay in both lower and managerial tier jobs. They still have not caught up at the highest tier jobs. So, you know, it's not as though this whole picture is equal across the board. Nor are we saying, hey, we need to prioritize men over women. Here's what I want to say. This is not a zero-sum game. So the way a lot of people look at the world is they think about the resources in the world, whether that's money or power, and they see it as a single pie, right? So if you get a big piece of pie, that de facto means I have to get a smaller piece of the pie. The beauty of economics, especially in capitalistic societies, is that it's not a zero-sum game. There are ways to make it so that everyone wins together, where you get a big piece of the pie, and I can also get a big piece of the pie because the pie got bigger, <laughs> Right. You grow the pie. And so everybody is better off. It's kind of like JFK's line, a rising tide floats all boats, right? You can increase the pie. We all get bigger pieces. Well, this goes to education. There's plenty of places for people to go for education. It's not like there's just these limited slots in colleges. So we have to divide them up. In fact, colleges are struggling to bring students in. They want more students. So the issue isn't that we don't have enough spots for students. So what we're saying here is now let's have less women be in college. What can we do to get more men in college? That's the question that we're looking at. So that kind of illustrates the zero-sum game thinking. Why do we care about this? Well, it's not because either one of us is worried that women are getting ahead. I mean, it was funny for me even reading the book. Richard Reeves is talking about how, you know, for the first time in American history, many wives are making more than their husbands. And I laugh. I go, well, that's me. <laughs> you know, my wife has higher earning potential than I do. It's partly because of the profession I've created. But also my wife is she's a hustler. She works really, really hard and she's put together a business where she's able to excel. Right. I don't see that as a threat to my masculinity, but we're doing fine. I'm not one of these men who isn't working, who's dying a death of despair, who doesn't have any friends. I'm doing fine, but there's a lot of men who aren't. Well, it is funny, Patrick, that you say that because I have been reading recently that couples in which the wife makes more money, like decidedly more than the man, is more susceptible to divorce. Their higher divorce rate inside of those marriages. Again, we're not saying what should be or what ought to be. We're just saying what is. Well, and it goes back to my point of I think marriage at the end of the day, is probably better for men than it is for women. And it's interesting that more men now want to be married than women want to be married. And you can go back and listen to our last episode, What to Expect When You're Not Expecting, because we get into that there. What we're trying to say is, why should someone care about this? Well, if you care about this because you want women to lose, that's not our game. That's not anything we're interested in. Why do we care about this? Well, I can give some very specific reasons. Reason number one, I have a son. I picked up Richard Reeves' book because my son's about to enter into kindergarten a year from now. And I kind of jokingly told Emily, I'm like, maybe we need to hold him back a year. Uh, you know, We need to think about his educational future. I want him to be able to have a- You said that before or after you read the book. After that's I read one the book. of uh, Richard Reeves' prescriptions is hold kids back here, so specifically boys. Yeah, uh, because they're they mentally less developed than girls at the same age are, so they're not as able to keep up educationally. But my concern with Oliver is not, you know, is he going to be the valedictorian or is he going to go to some great school? I mean, I want him to be a productive citizen one day. My concern for him is for his mental health and his welfare. I care about boys because I have one in my house. That's one reason I think a lot of people care is because there's a lot of parents of boys. You know, we come at this from not just people interested in the culture, but also uh, Christians who take Bible and theology seriously, at least try to. And so if you start to ask people like us, what does it mean to be a man not biologically, what does it mean to be a man, like based on your anatomy? I think we all get that and chromosomes and all that. But what does it mean to act 
like a man or to be a real man or to be a good man. That's really hard. I mean, I think we as Christians, we kind of understand, all right, we know what it's not. We're not supposed to go around and beat our chest and take advantage of our power or our physical strength or whatever to berate or belittle women or to be violent, that kind of thing. But what's a positive vision for masculinity according to the Bible? It's a pretty tough question. It is a tough question. This is one of those areas where we've had to do a lot of dismantling of what's wrong, kind of negative stereotypes of masculinity, even inside of Christianity. We had Kristen Kobez Dume on our other podcast, 10-Minute Bible Talk, several years ago. She wrote a book that has sold incredibly well called Jesus and John Wayne, where she explores how Christians use John Wayne as a kind of archetype of what it meant to be masculine. So you think about the loner, independent, stoic, emotionally disinterested, strong, somewhat violent. It was a stereotype, and she shows how there was a movement within Christianity. I hesitate to say it's the entirety of what Christianity said in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s about masculinity, but she goes to show that this was a stereotype that Christians had about what it looked like to be a godly Christian man, and she points out this didn't come from the Bible. This came from the movies, and that's a deep problem. And so this is why this is a really sorted question, because some of the answers we have are these stereotypical answers that really don't seem to measure up. It's not just Christianity that has a hard time answering this question. I think it's our broader culture, and it's easier to see the negative than the positive. And so what our culture has done is they've looked at what makes men distinct, and they've called that toxic. So you have this phrase all the time, toxic masculinity. And what they tend to call toxic masculinity are things like stoicism, you know, like men don't show as much emotion. They have a harder time being empathetic, competitiveness, dominance, aggression, In fact, I think it's the American Psychological Association who took those characteristics and said, this is bad. This is harmful. Well, I don't know. I mean, yes, it can all be used in harmful ways, but a lot of those are just descriptors of who men are and how they are biologically wired. Yeah, well, and to press into that, when the only vision you have of what being a man is, is an anti-vision. It's a psychological disorder. In other words, if all you're saying about masculinity is negative things or negative stereotypes or negative features, you aren't giving people a positive vision. But I think you added that another layer, which is when boys or men do things in our culture, rather than seeing that as maybe an individual problem, like, hey, here's a person who made a mistake or a problem with an age group or a particular level in their development, we often map that onto masculinity. This is a masculine problem. So an example this came from a high school just outside of Washington, D.C., Bethesda Chevy Chase high school. Yeah, Richard Reeves tells the story because his kids go there, but I heard this story long before I read it in his book. And I don't know how everybody's going to shake out on this story and what you're going to think of it, but Chevy Chase High School is an extremely liberal part of the country. Very (laughs) wealthy, very white, very liberal. I mean, like, for example, 80% went for Biden in the last election, right? Supposedly, if progressives have figured out how to do masculinity right, where you shouldn't have toxic masculinity... Hard to find a place better to test that hypothesis than Bethesda. These are boys at this high school who've been raised by the liberal elite. And what they found was is that some of the boys had developed a list that they were ranking the girls in the school based on their physical attractiveness. And kind of accidentally, coincidentally, one of the girls saw this and brought it to the attention of the school administration. And the boys were given detention for it. Okay, you know, so far, it seems like a reasonable thing to me. First of all, if you're shocked that boys were making a list of the physical attractiveness of girls in their school, well, I don't know what to tell you. Can I tell you what little subset here? What shocked me is at my high school, I for sure know that those lists existed. They were mostly the other way around. Really Girls making a list girls of made boys' lists physical of attractiveness? Boys that they thought were most physically attractive. I know this because I didn't rank very high on several of these lists, which I found painful at the time. <laughs> I'm just saying this is not something that is in, unique to boys. In other words, it's characteristic of high girls school Girls rank students. each other in how they look. But let's R- keep going, right, right, right. It's just the human condition, maybe. Yeah, it's but, wrong. We shouldn't do it. It's stupid. Like, if that was my son, I'd say, hey, what the heck are you thinking? Absolutely. It would for sure need to be corrected. But a protest ensued from this, and one of the girls said this, we should should be able to learn in an environment without the constant presence of objectification and misogyny. And so more and more protests happened. It became a bigger and bigger deal in the press. But here's what I think is the most interesting thing is that this incident was chalked up to toxic masculinity. In other words, these boys being concerned about the attractiveness of women is now called toxic. 
Well, again, we've already said it should for sure be corrected and it's not okay, but yet it is human condition and boys and girls both do it to each other and they're same sex, right? But to then label that natural desire and instinct as toxic is probably setting boys up to feel a lot of shame and guilt and wonder, what's my role? What's my place in the world? If you're just taking my basic instinct and saying that's bad. To put it somewhat differently, what that girl said, that she doesn't want to be in an environment where she's objectified, where there's misogyny, amen. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Absolutely. But then for the Washington Post to come along and label this teenager the archetype of toxic masculinity and that what he was doing was only a function of that, well, that's why it starts striking me as ridiculous because I know both boys and girls do this and there's lots of other things we could chalk this up to. We could chalk this up to teenagers having lots of hormones that make them highly sexually interested. That's just a fact of life and reality. We could chalk this up to the fact that they all voted for Joe Biden. Like, There's a million different things. <laughs> so I just want to illustrate the point that you could blame a lot of things. As a Christian, I could say, well, maybe this is because of the sexualization of teenagers. Like, Let's have a conversation about music and music video. Like, There's so many things you could talk about, but the answer, according to this group, of people, and I think according to culture writ large, is masculinity. That's the issue that we need to focus on. And then people are shocked that there's this whole thing out there called the manosphere of online, usually online men who are talking to young boys in a way that gives them what they think of as a positive vision for their life. I don't mean positive in the sense that it's good or moral or helpful or constructive because the manosphere is full of a lot of bad ideas, but they are saying to boys, don't let people talk down to you. Don't feel ashamed. This is who you should be. And they are trying to reclaim a role for American men that comes at the expense of women. But I think we've created a culture where the manosphere has credibility because of the way that we've talked about boys and men. And we shouldn't be shocked that we now have it. Yeah, so we're going to get back to this later, but I think that's exactly right. When you shame someone enough, there is a point at which they will say, okay, everything you're saying is true. I'm going to go the opposite direction. And so, I mean, we haven't even said this, but let's just name some facts here. I just finished Carol Hooven's book, T, which is about testosterone and its role in sexing human beings. Fascinating book, really interesting. But one of the things she says, I really think there's no biological evidence that's to the contrary of this, that's serious biological evidence, is that testosterone makes boys more aggressive, more competitive, more sexually driven. They're more interested in multiple sexual partners. I could keep going down a list of things that are features of what testosterone does in boys. Now, what the manosphere does is it says all that stuff, that's good. Go be a pickup artist. Go hook up with as many Make as much as money you as you can. Be as physically intimidating as possible. It takes all those things and says these are unadulterated goods that you need to run after and go after, which I think is not a healthy definition of what it means to be a man. But the problem is, in the absence of a healthy definition, a vision for how some of those natural facets of masculinity can be used for good. In the absence of that, is it a shocker that teenagers are drawn to the manosphere, that guys in their 20s are reading this stuff? Well, no. I mean, they're the only people saying that their masculinity is a good thing. Yeah. So let's kind of get into this then of what can be done about it. And there's one, what I guess you would say, kind of a secular take. And these are some of the things that are promoted by Reeves in his book. But he directs men to get involved more in the heel professions, which we said earlier were healthcare, education, administration, and literacy. So he says men need to embrace these professions. And if truck driver and construction worker, if those things aren't providing the jobs you want right now, look to these other places. He also says, like we alluded to earlier, start boys a year later in school. So have an extra year of preschool, I guess you would call it, for boys. And there you go. No more deaths of despair. Men are all fixed and we're all better. Well, I thought when I read his books, <laughs> I read it you know, a year or so ago when it first came out, I thought he laid out the problem very, very well. But his solution to the problem seemed to be lacking. I don't criticize them because I don't have the answer either. It just seems like we're all aware of the problem more than we're aware of what some solutions might be. But I do think one of the things he says in that book is we have to start thinking structurally instead of individually. In other words, this isn't just affecting kind of a one kid who's got some issues. These are systemic issues that are affecting all boys. Now, we can't help but say that and then pause and go, isn't it interesting how people on the right and left are choosy <laughs> about where they see structural or systemic problems yeah. and where they see them individually? Because a lot of people on the right have said race issues, they're individual issues, that they're not systemic issues. There's no systemic racism or structural racism. And a lot of liberals want to say, no, look, they're not about individual choices. They're about structure when it comes to, say, race. But now you flip it, you talk about men, 
And the conservatives are all going, well, these are structural issues. Look, automation, technology, and the liberals, the people on the left, are going, oh, no, these are just individual men not acting the way they should. So I guess structural and systemic issues are in the eye of the beholder. That is 100% true. And it is fascinating to watch. This is a structural issue. The problem, again, is that the structural issue is not opportunity. It's not as though boys aren't being given opportunities to do the things that we would hope that they would be doing. Because if that was the issue, they would be taking advantage of the opportunities. As Richard Reeves shows, that's not the case. I think the other issue that complicates this whole thing in our current cultural moment is just the question of to what degree is masculinity a social reality and to what degree is it a biological reality? Because again, if you talk to someone on the left, they will want to say that everything about masculinity is primarily social. We are socialized into our gender. Gender happens on a spectrum. There's not two genders. There's a 716 genders. And so it's all just socialization. The problem is science. <laughs> right. Well, that's where you brought up Carol Hooven's yes. book, Testosterone. And anybody who has studied testosterone understands that there are biological realities to men being different than women. So the answer, I think, is both. It's both. Now, Carol Hooven, by the way, is at Harvard. She's not some Christian person out there making no. a conservative evangelical argument. She's just following the data. And it's interesting. She's not an anti-trans activist. She's not the person who you would expect to be making this argument. But it's interesting where she started is in Uganda studying apes. She was studying chimpanzees in Uganda and she noticed that the men, the male chimpanzees, were all acting in a very stereotypical male way. And she realized this has nothing to do with cultural socialization. This has something to do with biology. And so she starts studying testosterone. And testosterone affects your body, right? Men's bodies. That's why you have secondary sex characteristics like facial hair. It's why you're bigger and stronger and all. But it all also affects brain and psychology, which you said earlier makes you more competitive or maybe more physically aggressive, those kinds of things. So there is both a biological component and a social component to men being different than women. This is the funny part. Keith and I have been debating for about the last two days about this entire episode because we've realized that on the one hand, if you go looking in the Bible for a definition of masculinity, like here's the Bible's list of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman— you're not going to find that list for men. You're it is so frustrating. You're not going to find. I want there to be a list, but there's no list. There is no list, and, and that's not because such lists did not exist in the ancient world. We know for a fact that Plato and Aristotle and various other ancient thinkers said a lot of things about the differences between men and women. Now, what they said was, by and large, incredibly misogynistic. Yes. So we can be grateful that the Bible doesn't say anything like that. And so this is the way I've been trying to square this circle. Right, Because what I don't want to do is get on the podcast and say, well, this is what the Bible says being a man is when I don't have chapter and verse to make the point. What I want to say is that the Bible wants both men and women made in the image of God to focus on this, Christ-likeness, to focus on living out and being the image of God in their life. However, there are differences, and the Bible's clear about this. There are male and female. There are differences between men and women, and those differences are not just in our bodies. They're in our psychology as well, which the Bible does nothing to try to define. And so our pursuit of those virtues, our pursuit of what it means to be Christ-like is always going to be, to some degree, a gendered pursuit. The way I seek to be Christ-like is going to be the way a man seeks to be Christ-like, and the way my wife seeks to be Christ-like is going to be the way a woman seeks to be Christ-like. And yet you can't say anything about what that is, right? I can't. Which is interesting <laughs> that you can say there is a male and female way to be Christ-like, and yet that's all you can say. Can I give an example of maybe a difference? Oh, I, this is bold for you. Yeah, okay. Let's, let's take a feature like risky behavior. So testosterone makes men far more likely to make risky decisions. So this is why you have more men who actually commit suicide. It's why you have men who have addictions and gambling. Like there's a lot of negative things that come with risk taking that men suffer from more than women. But there's some positives. For example, when you start looking at statistics of what kind of individual is most likely to risk life and limb to protect someone else, to rescue someone else from a life-threatening situation, it is by and large, men. In other words, we're seeing sanctified risk-taking. And now, it's not that women won't risk themselves. The way they risk themselves and, and how they do it, it looks somewhat different. But I'm just trying to say my pathway of becoming virtuous, of being someone who's courageous and self-sacrificial, might involve this kind of holy risk-taking more so than a woman might experience. Right, and we're talking on bell curves, on right? Bell curves. On bell These averages. are all on average. Of course, right? you can find women who are more of a risk-taking than some men, right? Yes. So we're not talking about individuals. Yeah, right. That's super important to understand. But 
I do agree that men need to take this masculinity, this testosterone-driven thing, and they need to funnel it in a virtuous way. So there's nothing virtuous about risk-taking. What you do with that inclination is either virtuous or non-virtuous. And so we need to have virtuous ends for men. And if we don't, then they're going to take all that and use it in a violent, degrading, belittling, harmful way. So Christina Hoff Summer said this, history teaches us that masculinity without morality is lethal, but masculinity constrained by morality is powerful and constructive and a gift to women. And like we alluded to earlier, for centuries, the difference between men and women were just more pronounced. It was easier to see and the culture supported those differences, maybe exacerbated those differences, maybe even in harmful ways. But women were having children and nurturing those children and men were doing the protecting and all. Now in our world, men have lost that role, that vision for their life. And we need them. We need people like me and you and all men to use that testosterone driven difference for something that is good and helpful for society. One example is she's saying about how masculinity needs to be constrained by virtue, which, yes, of course, we should be called to be more Christ-like. But a great example of that is, in most Western countries, the decline of domestic abuse. And we are seeing rapidly declining rates of domestic abuse. And this seems to be a socialization thing. It is no longer a norm or acceptable for a man to hit his wife. Well, that is virtue. (laughs) That is a socially inculcated virtue. That is a wonderful, good thing. And it is masculinity and aggression being constrained. Now, that aggression, I think, can be channeled in positive ways, like I explored earlier, in terms of risk-taking, in terms of protecting. That can be a positive thing. I actually want to change the conversation because we started this with what can be done. And I don't think the Bible, the answer is, here's the list of traits that it means to be a man. There's a backdoor route here. (laughs) It's it's how the Bible can help us with our man problem in the United States. And this has to do with how we deal with the problem of shame. My friend Brad Edwards, he has a podcast called Post Everything. It's a fantastic podcast. Go listen to it. He wrote an article for Mere Orthodoxy, and he identified one central problem facing men, and that was shame. He said, shame's the one thing that men are all facing, because the only thing they hear about their masculinity is that it's toxic. Now, we have to say there's places that shame can be healthy. For example, being shameless is not a good thing (laughs) in the Bible, but too much shame causes negative effects. I just want to read what Brad wrote because I think this is a really great paragraph. He says, shame can be healthy. It functions as a guardrail to our most socially damaging inclinations, adultery, child neglect. Its absence can be disastrous to families. You don't want a shameless father or a shameless husband, right? It can be disastrous to families, communities, and cultures. But shame as social consequence is, on its own, limited in affecting long-term transformation. To be shameless is not a compliment. It describes someone who selfishly ignores social guardrails at the expense of their community. Yet, only sociopaths reach that point due to a true absence of shame. Counterintuitively, it is when an oversaturation of shame accumulates and metastasizes that we simply stop caring about social consequences. So what he's trying to say here is, look, shame has an important role. We should feel shame over things. But when you have too much shame, when you just pour and lather people in a bath of shame, that will also have social consequences. That will metastasize, will become cancerous. Right. So if what men here are your natural inclinations, the things that your biology has created you to do in the world, that's bad, then what men are going to do is be inundated with shame. And what you've done is you've kind of robbed them of the glory and goodness of their masculinity. Now they don't know what to do. They don't know how to operate in that world. But what you don't want is a bunch of shame-bound men walking around looking for a way to assert their maleness. Yeah, well, I mean, the point that Brad makes, which is that when you put too much shame onto a single person or to a single class of people, it actually ends up flip-flopping. You become shameless because you have nothing left to lose. Like, if there's nothing good. good about me, then why would I restrain myself? If there's nothing good about my masculinity, why would I ever restrain it with virtue? So you just end up living for pleasure, living for self, kind of this Epicurean myth. Yeah, it changes shame from a guardrail to jet fuel, which I think is a really helpful metaphor that he gives. He says it empowers the very social ills that shame was leveraged to mitigate. So having healthy shame keeps me from doing some stupid things. Too much shame, I just stop caring. And I'll just become the monster you think I am. That's what he's trying to get at. And this goes back to the manosphere and everything else that we've discussed.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. So I just want to ask the question. We're saying that we've infused the masculine system with shame, okay? What are the results of that? And I think a helpful metaphor that Brad uses in his article is from the story of Peter Pan, Neverland. Now, have you never watched Peter Pan? I've never watched Peter Pan. I don't know anything about Neverland. Isn't he like a boy who flies? Tinkerbell. Yeah. Okay, I so, know Tinkerbell. So that, appar- I've told you everything I know. Apparently, since this is things that people might know, you know, Peter Pan is the story of this boy who never grows up. Hmm. He's in a permanent state of childhood. And by using his imagination, he is able to create whatever he wants. So he has all these friends called the Lost Boys. They're also stuck in a perpetual state of childhood. And that's how they find food. They just imagine the food is there, and now the food is there, and they can eat it. And they don't want to grow up. Their whole goal is to not grow up. Their enemies in the story are adults, but they're adults that are LARPing. (laughs) They're pirates, right? They're adults that are living out this kind of, we might say, hyper-masculinized vision of life. And so anyways, where am I going with this? Well, I think that you can see men respond in one of three ways. The first is what I like to call the Peter Pan response. These are the liberal men who say, I believe in toxic masculinity and I will spread the myth of toxic masculinity because by believing in it, it allows me to fly. And so these are the guys who on social media and other places, they shame men, they call out men for toxic masculinity, they bully other men online, they try to make sure that everybody else's speech is politically correct. Now, They're just like Peter Pan. They haven't grown up. They don't know what it means to be a man. They just know that the way to make themselves fly is shouting down other men and repeating what they've heard, you know, in the propaganda. I thought those men who were using toxic masculinity as a way to just describe manhood were just trying to get in good graces with the cultural moment. I think that's part of it. But my point is, who is Peter Pan? He's a boy who hasn't grown up. They know nothing about what it means to be a man and live out a healthy masculine identity any more than the guys that they're out there critiquing. They I just, think that makes sense. I got it. Then we talk about the Lost Boys. So these are the, I would say, the people on the right whose imagination is able to become reality in the sense that they kind of believe what culture's told them. These are the people who are dying deaths of despair. You're right. I am toxic. I am worthless. I am full of shame. I'm nothing. These are men who never grow up. They stay stunted. They don't have jobs. They don't have friends. They don't date. They leech on people around them. And they're living in this endless cycle of addiction and worthlessness. They're lost boys. They haven't grown up either. And unlike Peter Pan, they're not out there spreading the gospel of toxic masculinity. They're just suffering in the middle of it. And then we have the pirates. Yeah, then we have the pirates. So these would be, you know, more your classic people on the right. And what the pirates are, they're people who cosplay masculinity. So is this like uh, Andrew Tate, these kind of people in the manosphere? Yeah, it's the manosphere. That's what I would say, right? In other words, these are the guys who are out there LARPing what they think masculinity should be, okay? So they send out their Chad memes, they do their physiognomy checks. Where do the incels fall into this? Uh, I feel like the incels are somewhere between Lost Boy and Pirate King, but, you know, they're somewhere in here, right? Well, you brought up Chads, so that's where I think of the incels. Incels hate Chads, right? Right. But <laughs> didn't they create Chads? So incels are guys who have either voluntarily or involuntarily. Well, I think involuntarily, right? That's why the incel is involuntarily celibate. In other words, they can't have a relationship with women, normal, healthy, mutual relationships with women. So they've kind of grown angry and bitter and blamed women. And then if they see these guys who are doing well in their relationships with women, they label them Chads. And then Stacy's are the counterpart to the Chad. Yeah, yeah. 
I sound like I know more about this than I do, but that's I what I think the incel there. thing is interesting. I don't think it's common enough that like, I need to have a map for it in my little metaphor here, but yes. You don't need a lot of incels out there. I think that's like one of those highly online weird communities. My point with the Pirate Kings is that these are the people who are cosplaying masculinity. It's performative masculinity. They don't know how to be a man, and so they've taken all those traits of tea that we've discussed, and they've just exaggerated them. So a man's going to be a pickup artist. A man's going to have you know physical perfection, physically strong, and- even if they aren't that, they project that online by being, you know, angry, mean, unkind, and mocking. But at the end of the day, they're just LARPing, right? They're just playing a role. They don't know any better than the Lost Boys or Peter Pan how to be a man. Here's my point with this. I think almost every man, if they're going to be honest, is going to find aspects of themselves somewhere in this picture. Maybe it's in their worst moments. Maybe it's in their internal thoughts. But there's part of them that is tempted by one of these things, one of these false visions of masculinity. They want to go live in Neverland. But I think the alternative to shame is not LARPing and being a pirate king. It's not being a lost boy who just gives up. It's not being a Peter Pan who's out there you know, yelling about toxic masculinity and bullying other men. I think the answer to shame is glory. It's receiving the gift of God's grace in our life. If we go to the Bible and say, okay, what does the Bible give us for a positive vision of manhood? How does it reinfuse glory into being a man? This is where it gets tough because it gives us a positive vision of glory and living a purposeful, meaningful life, but not in a way that singles men out differently than women. But just pause for a second. So if we had a bunch of women who were filled with shame over their gender, and there probably are plenty of women who are filled with shame over their gender. Like due to purity culture or whatever. Yeah. What's the answer? It's to reinfuse them with the glory and the goodness of how God feels about them, how God sees them, who they've been called to be in God. I don't know that even in their case, it's like, and here's what it means to be a woman. Now we're way less scared to talk about, you know, chick bosses and go get them and have that kind of attitude with women than we are with men in general. But the call for Christians is to see the shame and say, hey, you know what Jesus does with that shame, he takes it upon himself and he gives you the gift, the grace of his father's love in his place. So then what we are all called to, whether we are men or women, is to accept that we are loved by our Heavenly Father, and then maybe even have this sense that God's Spirit is at work in us and producing the fruit of the Spirit, which is not gendered, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what we should be trying to grow in. Now, I think we feel comfortable in saying that those characteristics are going to look different in men than they do in women. And yet that's not where the Bible puts the emphasis. So perhaps we shouldn't put our emphasis there either. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's the message I think men who are overloaded with shame right now because of our culture. That's what they need to hear. I don't think what they need is another book giving them a litany, a list of here's all the features you need to be a man. Like here, I'm just going to describe for you what it means to be a man. You know what I think they need to hear? They need to hear Romans 8, you know, where Paul says this, for those who are led by the spirit are the children of God. Men need to hear You have a father. You are a child of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So you don't just have a heavenly father. You've been adopted. You've been called a son. You've been invited into the family. And by him, this is the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share, here's that word, in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I think the biblical answer to the shame men are experiencing is the glory of sonship. It's the glory that I in Christ have been adopted into the family of God and given a eternal glory, the weight of which far outstrips whatever shame, pain I'm feeling in the moment. And sonship, including both men and women. Yes. Because sonship is something in the Roman culture where the inheritance was passed down to the male. That's why it's called sonship. But now, in Christ, we have neither male nor female in that sense. And so that inheritance in Christ is passed down to both men and women equally. Yeah. I just want to say to men for a moment— You have unequivocal acceptance by your father. You have the delight of your father. You have the spiritual mentorship of your father. You've been given a mission by your father to be strong and to be courageous, right? That's what the same as the Joshua, right? I do think men need to hear, especially right now in a culture that's shaming them, that that is true of them. 
Okay, let me just try this, and I'm in the process on this. I'm just thinking about this. Right? Go. Is that we learn about our calling, who God is, who we are, primarily in the scriptures, and that's the clearest revelation we have from God. But I do also think that we can learn about God through nature and through creation. So there's like Psalm 19 that God speaks through the stars and through the heavenly realm, and the fact that men and women are created differently biologically. So back to the Carol Hooven testosterone, it affects both body and psychology. Well, it seems to me that for centuries that was played out in men having a specific role that was different than women, not better than just just different. And men thrived, maybe at the expense of women, but I don't know that always. My guess is over the centuries, there's a lot of women who are really happy with their role too. But either way, I can't interview a bunch of dead people, so I don't know. Now, since say the 60s and the last several decades, that's all changed. Our culture has changed in a way that has disadvantaged men. And then I'm sure there's a lot of debate about whether it's disadvantaged women or not. In some ways, clearly, yes. But in some ways, I don't know. Are women doing exceptionally well right now? In some ways, as we've described in this episode, they are. They get better education, better pay, and that kind of stuff. But if you look at the state of our society right now, I'm not sure anybody's exactly thriving. But my question is, is there something we learned about being a man, specifically the areas of being a provider and protector, that is rooted in creation? There's no Bible verse that says it. Be super clear about that. And yet, the stars declare the glory of God. Is there something that we learn about our biology, about what men are created for, different than women? Now, I get it. If you say that men are protecting, then you say women aren't, and that's different, then I get a lot of people are offended by that. And maybe they're right. I'm just in process. Or if you say men are providing, does that mean women can't have jobs? No, I'm not (laughs) saying that either. But I am saying that when we've gotten a world in which there are no difference, it's almost androgynous. It seems like we've got problems from that, too. So is there something we can learn about the way God designed men differently than women from creation? I think you're asking an interesting question. It's a natural law question, right? Anytime we start delving into natural law, it's like the Bible needs to be part of our guy, but we're also moving outside of the realm of, well, here's what the Bible says. I think what you said is true. It's like, let's take the protector thing. It's like, well, I can think of examples on both sides where you have, you know, have you ever seen a mama bear with her cubs? Like nature can teach you something about a mom being a protector. And yet. I do truly think, and not just think, we know that men are different than women biologically, not just in their chromosomes, but in their hormones, and that this affects how they live and that we can learn something about that by studying those things. Now, that doesn't mean that we sanctify aggression or sexual promiscuity or various other features that, by the way, are associated with testosterone. Correct. It has to be channeled toward moral virtues. Yes, I agree. It has to be channeled toward moral virtues. Maybe this way of doing it is saying this. Few people in our culture have a big issue with a Instagram influencer talking about being a girl boss, about hustling, about you got to be, you know, a woman who works hard and you need to be a competitive woman and you need to be successful. Like, and I don't really have a problem with any of that. I don't either. Right. The minute you start saying that about men, people start having a problem. So the competitiveness, the drivenness, the protection, the aggression is a problem when it's in men, but not when it's in women. It just depends on your cultural context, right? If you're at right. John MacArthur's church, let's just flip-flop everything, okay? That's like <laughs> the upside down, okay? Well, let's just don't go to that church. <laughs> let's just go to that church, okay? <laughs> but you hear where I'm going with this. I think what men need to be challenged in is first and foremost what the Bible emphasizes, which is to pursue virtue, and yet also simultaneously realize that men need to have things in their life that help them express their masculinity in virtuous ways. So, for example, one thing I think we could start reintroducing into Christian communities and other places are masculinity rituals. I think these are really beautiful things. So, you know, people know in the Jewish community of bat mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs, these are points at which a child is transitioning from childhood into adulthood. And I wonder what that would look like to create those kinds of moments of passage for boys in our culture, just so they can be told, you're a man and being a man is a good thing and it's a glorious thing. And we can call them to Christ-like virtue in the midst of that. Well, one of the things that used to serve that role is the Boy Scouts. But you know what? Boy Scouts are open to both men and women. (laughs) So that's the interesting thing. So, I mean, for me, I did Boy Scouts when I was a kid. In one sense, I don't care. But on the other hand, what's the point of having Boy Scouts? Well, no, so that's where I'm going with this. I did Boy Scouts as a kid, and they had these rituals built into the Boy Scouts. And one of the things you'd have to do was you would spend, there's multiple times you would do this, but you would spend an entire night out in the woods by yourself. So you'd 
take a tarp and you take a sleeping bag and some stuff to light a fire with. And I mean, in my memory, like there was no one around me. I'm sure that wasn't actually the case, but like, you know, I was off in the woods by myself and you're supposed to meditate while you're out there. And, but there was this moment of saying like, Hey, you can survive on your, now that was really valuable for me because I walked out and to have a bunch of men around me leading the troop of Boy Scouts say, Hey, you're a man. Like you can sleep in the woods alone. Like you've done this risky, scary thing and you've come out alive. That was an important moment for me as a child. I'm schizophrenic because everything I just argued a second ago, I'll argue against and go, well, you know, I have three boys and a daughter and my daughter could benefit from that. She'd probably do just as well as anybody. And so partly I get offended by gendering things when they don't (laughs) need to be gendered. On the other hand, I look at the world that's created and I think there might be some sort of problem with it. (laughs) We're all twisted up in a gender pretzel right now. I told you I'm in processing. Either you'll like that and you'll join in the process or you'll judge me, but love don't judge. That's what I say. Okay, so one of the roles that men can have is to be husbands, right? To be husbands and fathers. And that's a unique role to a man. A man. And I think we need to have men take their masculinity and channel it to that virtue of being a right kind of husband and a right kind of father. Now, again, there's a whole debate about what does that mean? And people will come out on different sides of that, but it's seeking the welfare of other people, Mm -hmm. I think, the people that God has put you in community with. Paul calls husbands to lay down their lives for their wives as Christ has done for the church. There's a vision of masculinity. And now we have chapter and verse. We're more comfortable because we can confidently say, this is what the Bible has called us to do. Mm -hmm. And yet there's this thought in my head that if all the church can do is offer men to be husbands and fathers, but nothing else. It seems kind of narrow. And yet that's where the Bible emphasizes the distinction. So I'm bound by the scripture in that sense. Maybe we can push even further because whether or not you have children, you can be a spiritual father. I mean, Paul did this with Timothy. So maybe what you could say to a man who's in the older stage of life, hey, I want you to express your masculinity by this. And this is a desperate need. You need to be a mentor. You need to be a sage. You need to be someone who can come along someone else in their life and help them develop and grow in wisdom and in virtue. And maybe that's also something, by the way, we could say to younger men is, hey, you need to be a son. These are masculine roles that I think anybody can step into inside of a church context. At the end of the day, we know that the route of just clear, defined, this is what a man is and a woman is, that way lies peril. Not because of our cultural environment, although certainly that, that way lies peril because as we're already showing, it doesn't fit well with the Bible. The Bible doesn't give those definitions. And yet we also know that like a androgynous route, there is no difference between men and women. It's all just one big goo. Well, we know that way lies peril too, because the Bible is clear. There is such a thing as a male and female. And in fact, it's in the verse that talks about us being made in the image of God. So there's something fundamental even about our gender and our gendered bodies and our gendered psychology that's part of our image bearing. Our difference is reflective of the difference in the Trinity. I mean, there's so many different things that we could talk about here. So here's what I think we can say. There are men who are lost and hurting. Okay. That much we know. Those men need spiritual parents. Great. Be a spiritual mother to a man. That's great. It's not my point here. They need spiritual mothers. They need spiritual fathers. They need mentors. They need counselors. We need to start actively caring for men who are suffering under shame by infusing them with the glory and goodness of God's love for them. One of the most powerful things I've done with fellow men is sought that out in friendship. I mean, I think men need male friends. There's something about having a male friend that you're, at least in my experience, you're having different kinds of conversations and you're going to have uh, with a female friend. Not too long ago, I've now kind of become a yearly tradition. I go on this retreat with other men and we go away. There's no distraction. There's no work. There's no phones. And we bring in some older men who kind of function like sages. And those sages pour into the guys who were there and they share their life experiences and their life stories. Do you I beat have, drums? I, we beat drums and we, <laughs> yeah. And then all these younger guys, we get together at tables and we ask hard questions and we open up and it's like, that space has been deeply healing and encouraging for me and for all of those young men because we don't have other spaces like that frequently in our lives. And so whatever you take in terms of like, what does it mean to be a man and a woman, which somehow we still got fixated on despite not wanting to do that, I think we can at the very least say the shame is a real problem. And we have to create solutions that deal with the shame. And the only solution we have is the glory of God. And these things can be infused through mentoring, through spiritual parenting, through friendship, through those kinds of events. I mean, if someone's listening to this and you want to do an event like that, reach out to me. I'll give you the resources. You can go do that. We have to do something to care for our boys. I agree in that we all see that there's a problem 
that men are experiencing. We didn't even go down the whole porn thing and how many men oh, are yeah. addicted to porn. So we didn't explore all the ways that men are hurting, just few. But even the few we looked at are really serious. But we're not sure what to do. And I would say that one of the reasons that we're not sure what to do is because we can't answer the question, what is masculinity? Because if if you believe that a lot of being a man or a woman is rooted in biology and socialization, but biology, a lot of the emphasis there, but not 100%, you're going to have different solutions than if you think, well, it's mainly overwhelmingly about socialization. If for centuries men were just socialized into being the provider and protector, then what we need to do now is socialize them in a different way that fits with our modern moment. But if you think that men are the way they are, largely because of biology, then you're going to have a different set of solutions. And you might have to change structures within our culture in order to provide those solutions. I don't know the answer. Clearly, everybody's going to say it's some of both. No one except just extremists are going to say it's all biology or all socialization. But how much it is in each one where the emphasis in is going to shape the results or shape the solutions to the problems. I think I actually do disagree with you. Yes, I think that's an interesting question. I don't need the answer to that question to say that if we have a group of people that is struggling from systemic shame, that I do have an answer to that problem. Well, yes, you have an answer to that problem. It's, I don't it's, I don't need these definitions. You, no, you do have an answer to that problem. I agree, and I agree with your answer. That is acceptance, love of Christ. Amen. But... That's not going to fully address this issue of what is a man called to do and be in the world. Oh, man, I agree. And I just, I'm so, we're going to have to just shut down the episode and agree to disagree. That's like, I know, I'm, but no, I'm you with you. You don't disagree with me. No, I don't. That's the thing. That's the point. We, it's we like, just don't have any I mean, answer. I'm just like sitting here thinking, I'm like, think about all the books that come. It's like, you know, Jesus through the eyes of women or, you know, like, we are so not afraid to talk in certain circles about gendered identity in one direction we're afraid to go the opposite direction and the groups that aren't afraid to go the opposite direction don't seem to do it in a really healthy smart it ends up being the john wayne thing it's the manosphere we have to find a different way to talk about it that's not saying we can't talk about men and that isn't also saying john wayne's the answer how about may our next book be on this topic and solve the problem? <laughs> oh, you and I writing a book on masculinity. We There's would make a lot of money <laughs> if we could solve the problem, but we can't even figure it out in our own head. All right. If you have the answer, you email us. Let us know what you're thinking. If you've read a great book that you think we've got to read and we should have someone on to talk about it, we can do it. We'll have that conversation as well. But I hope this is making you think deeply about a serious problem in our culture and I think the pretzely nature of trying to solve it. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. <laughs> okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.